This right here is on the Matter of Systems, a tabletop role-playing show where every month your hosts will critically engage with some RPG theory and some RPG design. Speaking of hosts, I'm your host, B, they, them, hi, hello, like a like a honeybee. Um, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, BW. How's it going, BW? It's go- it's going uh, intensely. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Um, listen, I, we're today going to talk about imagining ourselves uh what's the subtitle to this thing queer mechanics and queer games yes thank you imagining ourselves queer mechanics and queer games a talk given by avery alder about queer mechanics and queer games um avery uh yeah i think i was about to say how could you not approach such a such a um interesting topic without you know being so high energy yeah how could you how could you not? <laughs> I, I really liked this talk. I'm going to give some historical context, and then we're going to get it, get into it. I'm calling these uh, segments, I guess, historical context as I understand it, because I do do some research, but I'm heavily informed by uh, me and my knowledge. So this talk was uh, given in, uh, on August 4th, August 4th? Uh, August 4th, 2014, at Proud and Nerdy, which is a Swedish queer games conference. Digging into a little bit, a lot of this is from, uh, I literally was on Google Translate a lot here, so, um, not, maybe not the best possible source, but Proud and Nerdy seems to be, like, sort of an, a queer advocacy arm of this thing called Sverok. I'm absolutely definitely butchering that, which from some Wikipedia research seems to be a like confederation of democratically organized gaming youth groups. That seems like it has like 55,000 plus members. I think there, it seemed like there's something where like any group with 3,000 plus members in it gets government funding as, as like a sanctioned youth group sort of thing. This is all wild. I did not pay attention to your historical context section. Uh-huh. This is <laughs> wild. Yeah, um, it seems like Proud and Nerdy still exists. It was, I think it's in August because Swedish Pride is in August. I'm not really sure what the historical context for that is the talk was given in malmo which i believe is probably i assume i guess is just one of the larger cities in sweden so it probably has a, a, a pretty decent proud and nerdy section of, of you know spherok representation or at least did in 2014 probably enough that they could afford to fly out avery to talk about queer mechanics and queer games. On her website, Avery mentions that this is um, pretty explicitly a follow-up to her previous talk, Beyond Representation, Queer Mechanics in Tabletop Games, which was a talk that I was at, sort of. I think I only caught like half of it, even though it's only a half-hour talk. That was given at the Queerness in Games Conference in at UC Berkeley in 2013. Uh, the first, the queer, first Queerness in Games Conference, actually, from, you know five years before I came out. So I was like, very much like, am I allowed to be here? Kind of eggy stuff. (laughs) Uh, um, That talk is good. It's also still up. It was it was uh, actually a talk with another person who has, um, as far as I was able to figure out changed their name changed her name since um, that period. Avery was also going under a different name, but I don't really know. I don't really know the ethics of that. I don't, and I don't know the reasoning that the uh, the co-presenter changed her name. So I'm, I'm gonna kind of just sideline that you can look it up. You can, you can find this person there. She's online still. Did you, uh, I'm just curious, did you go back and actually watch the full talk? I did. Yes. Um, sort of like half watched. It was a very casual thing. I think I was like 
wandering around the house doing chores or whatever with headphones in, just sort of listening to it. It's it, a lot of there's a lot of overlap here. Um, it's a half an hour, so it's a lot less of it. Yeah, that, that's what I noticed. I I did not watch the full talk. I uh, I read through the slides, and there's a there's quite a lot of overlap. It seems. Yeah. I think this is, I think the the imagining ourselves is genuinely a better delivered <laughs> talk. It's weirder energy because of the baby that cries straight through the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, shout out to, to Avery for just making it through because that baby yeah. was going ham a few times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, as soon as that started happening, I think I mentioned on uh, episode 1.2 that I had watched like the first like 10 or 15 minutes of this and, and was just like, this will be great. So I think I got right about to the part where the, the kid starts going off and I did not expect it to last basically the entire talk. Yeah. And so I'm glad I was like, hey, we should really seriously think about uh, whether we want to do video or not, because I'm glad we had the conversation of being like, yeah, we should, if we do video, we should be, you know, sitting at a desk, you know, headphones in. And not distracted because that was a pretty <laughs> prime example of the kind of content that I could see immediately turning somebody off of wanting to go on with this, which isn't to say people with kids shouldn't be allowed to go to things and kids shouldn't be allowed to um, express feelings and emotions and uh, difficulties that they're having. That is that is an important part of the social fabric. It's also annoying sometimes. <laughs> True. I concur on both counts. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so the Beyond Representation talk wasn't the only thing that uh, Avery had done the year prior in 2013. In 2013, Avery Alder published Monster Hearts, the Powered by the Apocalypse uh, hack, wherein you play as teens who are also secretly monsters, and there's a lot of sexy stuff that happens. I've, I think that's probably her best-known game. Uh, she, has, she has since made Monster Hearts 2. That was like her return to tabletop after taking a few years off. In 2013, Avery Alder published The Quiet Year, uh, a game I believe we have mentioned. Yeah, a game I have referred to as maybe my favorite game of all time. Uh period question mark i don't know <laughs> uh it's a map making game uh where every player plays the entire community she also released sort of early version i guess of a game called dream askew which i have never played dream askew or dream apart those like officially came out in late 2018 and spawned something called the belonging outside belonging system or it's also known as no dice no masters which is kind of a huge system i guess uh that is that is getting like a lot of play in indie tabletop especially now um probably the most recent very large game that i mean very large in the indie sense uh game that came out uh using the belong outside belonging system is wander home by i believe jay dragon a very good game which i have played a session of and was very good so <laughs> all to say literally in 2013 avery alder published one of the biggest power by the apocalypse games the Quiet Year, a game that has um, inspired a billion different games and is just a, a kind of a masterpiece of design, and an early version of what would become one of the hottest systems currently. <laughs> Which is all to say, I think she was a little bit on fire. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a little <laughs> that's bit. A, a fair assessment. And this is sort of where my personal context comes in. Um, I, like I said, I, I saw part of the Beyond Representation talk at QGCon, um, because like 2012 was when I started getting back into games, and it was because of this 
huge growing awareness of and prolifery of like queer and trans creators, many of them in the Bay Area, but also all over the world. So like 2012 to 2014, there was like this huge, there was like what felt like a huge groundswell of both creativity and support of, of queer and trans creators. A lot of that was on the video game side. It's um, it's sort of the twine revolution moment. But there was like a lot of really good criticism being published. Um, Patricia Hernandez, who I believe is at Kotaku now, she was running a site called Nightmare Mode that was like really smart criticism primarily by and for other other uh, queer and trans folks, mostly in video games, but with some tabletop stuff. God, like 2014 was probably when Maddie Bryce made Reaction, which is a really great little journal that sort of failed at, at crowdfunding uh, in a really unfortunate way, but had a had some really great stuff. The probably the biggest public moment of this thing was in 2013, I believe, uh, Richard Hoffmeyer, who made the game Cart Life, uh, won the uh, Independent Game Festival Award uh, at GDC, and then spray painted over his own booth and replaced his game that had just gotten this big award meant to, like, you know, make a million more people aware of it in order to replace his game with a game called Howling Dogs by Porpentine, um, which is a really impressive twine game. I haven't revisited it in quite some time, but it's a it's a striking piece of writing and a, and a really cool game. I agree. Howling Dogs is like is way way up there for me. Yeah. Um, I could go on and on about this forever. Um, just wanted to shout out. Uh, there's also a game called Problematic. Uh, you can find it on, on Ella Gudo, E-L-L-A-G-U-R-O dot H dot I-O. Um, I think that game got criminally underplayed and under-talked about. Uh, I think it's a masterpiece of aesthetics <laughs> and uh, uh, sort of fuck you puzzle platformer game design just a really really smart cool thing in my opinion the other thing that was happening (laughs) around 2012 to 2014 in games uh was a massive reactionary movement uh coalescing you saw this in the sort of 2012 2013 period when there was a big backlash uh from giant bomb and also supplemented by some alleged 4chan and reddit raids when samantha allen brought up the fact that it was kind of very disappointing that giant bomb in their first big hiring after the passing of ryan davis just hired two more cis white dudes those dudes being uh, dan reichert and jason a striker she mentioned that on a, on a podcast and there was like a huge blow up she got harassed pretty seriously there was the uh tropes versus women in video games kickstarter that uh went from a modest project to a wild success to a famous harassment campaign there was zoe quinn getting a depression quest on steam and getting blowback for uh you know bringing politics into games i made sure to note the date of the talk because august 4th 2014 is 12 days before the post that starts gamergate comes out wow that's wild yeah the the targeted harassment campaign around uh women and femmes in video games that uh still reverberates to this day eight years later um and and you know training ground for um some some truly heinous shitheads uh so yeah um (laughs) all to say this uh talk is given in a moment of like a 
a genuine sort of liberatory queer uprising uh sort of at the i don't i don't know about the height i was about to say at the height of a, a designer's um powers um given by a designer at the height of her powers is like wrong um she's still designing really cool things um but like somebody who just come off an incredible run of games is supported by a community of people that are that are making a big splash in the world and are actively under attack by a bunch of reactionary shitheads um that is the context as i understand it does that seem fair to you pw uh sure yeah uh i didn't do any of the research about the context so i just assume you're correct (laughs) Um, I mean, I lived through I lived through part of this, right? But I was barely getting into sort of weird game shit around this time, and like at this point, would never have ever referred to myself as queer. Oof, no way. Oh yeah, absolutely, same boat, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the the twelve days after thing is af- absolutely wild to me, just because just thinking about what was happening and like. I mean, like, Howling Dogs was in, like, MoMA, or the Whitney, I think, uh, as part of the Biennial, I think, uh, at some point soon after this. I think think that's right, yeah. And it wasn't just, like, Porpatine, I believe, had, like, a whole little section. I went to that Biennial. I I visited New York and went to it um, and, like, played played some of that stuff i think there were like multiple computers set up with things and then to have to just think about what what happened over the next few years is brutal um, yeah it, you might one might say that uh the the moment that avery was pointing towards seemed incredibly pregnant with possibility and then you know reaction happened and while it yeah. didn't stop didn't stop people from creating cool things along the, as as they do d- definitely cut off a more revolutionary path forward perhaps yeah which i mean in some ways is a good uh is a good segue into the actual talk itself right because it just hammers home the point that i think she she's making which is games are useful because they can help us imagine different worlds and different futures and not just imagine but well anyway that want me to summarize the article would you would you like to summarize the article vw i'm getting some some energy in the room some like summarizing energy Uh, yeah Uh, yeah i mean like but for real right like the context helps hammer home why this talk is important and why this talk was important so uh what is the talk it's a pretty it's pretty straightforward in some ways basically avery sort of starts off, right? Story games allow us not just to imagine new worlds, but to inhabit them, to sort of practice living in these new kinds of ways of these new environments or these new worlds. This is something that queer folks desperately need, right? We need queer world building. So uh, because story games allow us not just to imagine, but to actually sort of practice living, um, story games could be very helpful for sort of queer games and queer gaming. And so the question becomes, okay, well, if story games can do this and we need ways of sort of imagining queer futures and queer resistance, where what does that look like in the world of games? Um, and so she talks through sort of the first way that this shows up, which is representation, which is queer people on screen, right? So this is true of novels and movies as well as games. And then says, but that's not enough. Representation isn't enough because games are made of systems that are made of mechanics. And those mechanics and systems are not 
apolitical, right? They're not neutral. They're designed by people. They Those mechanics and systems have the biases of the people that made them. And so what Avery says is we've been playing straight games and we need to play queer games if we want to really use the power of this medium. And so she talks about what what do queer games look like? Sort of at a high level, sort of a, a couple examples of like what the kind of spectrum of ways that a game could sort of look queer in sort of a broad strokes uh, fashion. Uh, and then walks through six mechanics or sort of approaches to mechanics that could help if you, for instance, are designing a game or even if you're just playing a game, ways of approaching mechanics or changing mechanics or altering mechanics to sort of make them more queer. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the talk. Uh, and at the end, there's a call to action, right? To put the things into practice, to queer games and to find queerness in games and to design games that emphasize queerness. But that's kind of the overall basics, I would say, of like what it is, right? There's this great line, we've been playing straight games and it's time we play queer games. That's just like a really good line. Uh, but that is in some ways the sort of like main thesis of yeah. the talk. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so yes, uh, I think your summary was very good. Thanks. Yeah, how do we want to? Um, is there? I mean, I think the first of the sort of examples that she brings up is the most interesting one to me. Well, yeah, I guess one of the things I was gonna, I think maybe ask. It, so basically, the the I kind of think of the talk as existing in kind of two sort of sections. There's kind of the the first section, which is essentially sort of the initial argument, right? Yes. Of like. Story games allow us to do this thing. This is a thing that is important for queer folk. And so as as queer folk uh, sort of engage with games, here are the ways in which we can sort of find a space in them, right? Talking through the representation thing, like, I don't know that I have a ton to say there. I will say I didn't fully get how the example of the, the character from Pathfinder was good representation, aside from it being a trans person that existed, Kind of. My read on that is that it's a it's a trans person that exists in a in a larger property that I didn't look into it, but presumably isn't you know bound by a bunch of obvious tropes or whatever. Like yeah, that's, that that's my guess. I did not look any further into it, and and I didn't either. And she talks about a couple other games. She talks about Hug Punks and Apocalypse World, but I don't know that I have a ton to say about sort of the first part where she's kind of like doing some stage setting and kind of showing like broad approaches. I do think the six mechanics are probably the most interesting thing to yeah. talk about. Can I um, can I do everyone's least favorite segment? <laughs> oh God, we! Oh, I'm very excited. What is everyone's least favorite? It's segment? when we read a thing and I pull out what I what I think is the the sort of most definitive statement about systems in the thing, and then I I pose it to you as a question as to whether you think it it works or not, and then you say, well, "Yeah, kinda," and then we move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. I'm ready. I'm excited. I like the uh, slide that I'm assuming you're going to. Um, I have a I have a long quote actually uh, that I, I transcribed. I, I, the way I took notes for this was mostly just taking making very long transcriptions. So this is a claim fairly early on. I think the first like ten minutes or so. Avery says. At their core, games are systems. Systems are built out of mechanics, and it's important to acknowledge, both in the context of games and when we're talking about the rules and laws that govern our real lives, that systems aren't objective or neutral. So I guess the question there, I think we probably both agree very obviously that uh, that that there's politics in designed things. Is that fair to say? I do agree with that statement, I yes. think it would be... It would be interesting if either of us didn't necessarily believe that games are systems, or at least can be, right? Given the 
purpose of this podcast <laughs> or the structure. So the yeah. question I kind of have is systems are built out of mechanics. Does that, I think that rings intuitively true to me, or it's like, it sounds right, but I don't know the implications there. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, on those, on that claim. Well, I, I, the thing I'll say is this is the risk of do, trying to do close readings of something like this talk, right? Because I think the slide lays it out. There's a slide called Mechanics or Politics in the slide deck for this talk, where it's just stated slightly differently. Because, like, at their core, games are systems, and systems are built out of mechanics. It is, like, true, I agree, if the actual text is at their core games are systems game systems are built out of mechanics because like i don't believe that every system is built out of mechanics <laughs> but like yes. i do think that game systems are built out of mechanics like absolutely a hundred percent like no matter how simple your game is if it is a game i think it is a system of some sort of mechanic that is telling you to do a thing right you want to do a thing this is how you do it here is the mechanic for that yeah, I like I I agree with that. I also b agree that systems aren't objective or neutral. The, so the way it's stated on the slide, which I really like, is games aren't slideshows. Games are systems, right? So here's the here's like a big claim, right? There this is this comes after the talk of representation and specifically comes after the slide that is representation isn't enough, right? So having people on the metaphorical screen isn't enough because games aren't slideshows. Games are systems. Systems aren't objective or neutral. I'm reading from the deck again. Games aren't slideshows. Games are systems. Systems aren't objective or neutral. Games present us with the designer's biases. All mechanics reinforce worldviews and politics, right? Like that flow makes a lot more sense to me, which is games are systems. Systems aren't objective or neutral because those systems in games are made up of mechanics that are designed by humans. And it's always going to rein reinforce right the biases and sort of latent beliefs of the people making yeah, them. Yeah, I think I agree with you, and I should have referenced the slide. Although I, I will say, very, and this is maybe just you know the maybe again me uh, just having weird particular context, but the games aren't slideshows. I get that this is a slideshow. Um, that's probably just all it's supposed to be. But there was like also a kind of a huge weird blow up in in the queer like blogging and Twitter games stuff, where uh, like a famous designer named Raf Coster referred to Anthropy's game Dysphoria as like like as <laughs> I believe he said that like, that most of it could have been made in PowerPoint and that made it not a game. So there's a very specific. Or, or he, I believe he said that those parts of it aren't a game because, you know, games are uh, inputs and mechanics. And uh, and that was a, a huge point of contention um, in this community at this time. So that is no, that is very true. Yeah, I'd forgotten about the Raf Raf Rafe Raf Rafe Coster. How do you say his name? I have never heard it said aloud. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, I totally forgot about. Um, oh, yeah. I like Anaanthropy's work, but I also try to be clear-eyed about the fact that a lot of dysphoria could be built in PowerPoint and isn't a game. That is a quote from <laughs> uh, a blog post by Mr. Cox. Is, is, is there a date on that? That's what I was trying to see. 2012. So yeah, before sounds, this. Yeah, two years before this. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. So that's so I guess that's <laughs> that helped me get down to my actual question uh, or not question, maybe even, but sort of sentiment about this sort of totalizing idea that games are systems and systems are mechanics is that is a that is a contested philosophical point in this community at this time and uh it's just kind of in here um it's it's a very ludologist take on the whole thing i i don't actually know that i agree with that because i think that it would be a ludologist take if you don't pay attention to the context of the talk I think I think the language she's using is very particular because of where it comes, which is point she's making is is less about slides and more about imagery versus like action. Yes. Right. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that I think I I think you're a deconstructionist. I think I'm a deconstructionist. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, you had said, so I think the the six mechanics, yeah. right? I think the first one, you had said the first one is one of the most sort of rich for you. I, I tend to agree conceptually, but I kind of feel like we should maybe just touch on each of them. I think uh, there were a couple yeah. that confused both of us, at least yeah, somewhat. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah, I think, they're, I think they're the same ones. I think it's four and six. Yeah. Both not quite as well developed as they could have been, at least for, in both of our independent readings. Yeah. Um, but hey, we, we'll get there. We will. Because it's time to talk about our boy. Like, I literally <laughs> cannot believe that Ron Edwards was back. It was, I had no idea this was going to come up. I, Just like, genu- <laughs> genuinely can't believe. So, yeah. So, uh, here I am sitting at home. I, in fact, did not watch this while sitting at a desk. I was, in fact, sitting on my couch. But I was sitting on my couch with a laptop on my lap. So, I was taking notes. I was watching this talk being like, wow, yeah, way to go, Avery. Wow, that that baby's real loud okay cool and then all of a sudden (laughs) ron edwards is mentioned so so as a reminder right so the sort of final part of this talk is avery walking through six mechanics or kind of approaches to mechanics that can sort of help queer your games and the first one is the fruitful void which apparently ron edwards was in part responsible for coming i, up I looked into it a little bit and it does seem like ron edwards coined it and then lump, lump <laughs> i call him lumpley because the forum yeah. names uh devins and baker was uh, pretty instrumental in developing it also i i assume probably at this point avery alder is also very important in the development of the idea because i think she's the only person who ever talks about it <laughs> um, uh, but do you do you want to explain what the fruitful void? Yeah, is? Uh, <laughs> my, my mechanic or my notes. I wrote down that the fruitful void games are about their mechanics. No, what they're about <laughs> is they're about what the mechanics circle around and point towards without actually defining. Um, and then I wrote parenthetically, "This is deconstruction." Speaking of me being a deconstructionist, uh, and uh, specifically, it's the Derridian concept of aporia, which is uh, you know the hole in the text that is. Uh, that defines and deconstructs the text on its own. Um, we do not need to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but no, we don't. Yeah. Avery specifically brings up uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, a game by D. Vincent Baker, um, which is a game about, you know, being Mormon missionaries uh, and going out and killing, killing folks for God and stuff, and about how the game... It's clearly about faith, but there's no faith mechanic in it. There's no way of saying, like, I've leveled up my faith or I've, you know, I take a hit to my faith. And she also mentions Monster Hearts and how the whole game is about 
turning each other on. That's like one of the fundamental moves, but there is no, there is no place on the character sheet where it's like, I'm gay or bi or pan or straight or whatever. That is not a thing you get to choose because that's what the game is actually about, is about the way that sexuality gets developed beyond, you know, what the mechanics point to necessarily, which is much more a game about playing with people's uh, sense of uh duty towards one another with strings and stuff like that but yeah i think this rules i think this is a really good concept i think uh ron edwards a famous hater of postmodernism, uh did, really outdid himself by reinventing <laughs> deconstruction <laughs> we're proud of you ron <laughs> yeah i i agree i i think this is a really y- useful and interesting concept um I mean, I think the dogs in the vineyard thing was, uh, so I've read most of, I think, Monster Hearts. I don't think I've read Monster Hearts 2. I've never played Monster Hearts, but I've read dogs in the vineyard a couple of times because I I find it so fascinating as a a person who was raised religiously. Um, And like, it really, I, I had not, I had not articulated this before this talk, which is like, there really is no mechanism around faith in a game about religious enforcers. It's like kind of wild the more i thought about it and i mean this is jumping ahead slightly in terms of our agenda but one of the interesting things about the the sort of last half of this talk for me was that i don't design games i have no interest in designing games so thinking sort of what i would do with these concepts was kind of interesting just like how would i use this or what would i do with this and i i really i think it's a very interesting it's a very interesting thing to take forward as we do this podcast, to be perfectly honest, right? Like, w- what is the thing that the that the system isn't talking about? And it then becomes the question of like, is this a is this knowingly using the fruitful void? I mean, whether they would use those words or not, right? Mm-hmm. But like, is this a choice that they are making, or is this sort of a a, a weird tell? in some way, right? I think is kind of an interesting and useful way of thinking about parts of games. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Um, like, and yeah, I will say I'm, you know, I'm much more on the GM side than than you are a lot of the time, but like very much, I mean, I have written a couple of small games, four maybe, like <laughs> ranging from like, you know, six lines to a couple pages, uh, but I'm very much not a game designer also. So these are very much, I'm also coming at these in a, uh, are these useful for me critically sort of position? And I, think I agree with you that Fruitful Void is uh, a really compelling uh, tool to have in your critical toolbox, if that makes sense. It it does, because it, to me in particular, it, it just feels like such a productive question to ask about things, <laughs> like... And even even not games, right? Like the idea, the concept of the, I mean, uh, as you pointed out, right? This is also just Derrida in some ways, <laughs> right? But like, uh, I, I think the, the, the specific example of the fruitful void in games is like really, really useful. But it's just, it's nice to have language sometimes, right? Yes. For a thing that is this like question you might want to ask or sort of carry through as you read. It's things. also nice to have language that isn't, you know, uh, Oh yeah, so we should be looking for the aporia here. Oh yeah, Correct. that's yeah. a um, that's a Derridian term, which has you know it's very specific in uh, textual analysis, uh, and, and you know say the fruitful void, and that, and that even sounds pretty gay. Like it absolutely does sound super gay. 
Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I will also just very quickly say I have run one session of Dogs in the Vineyard, and I think I played in two sessions of Monster Hearts. Both of those games are among the most disastrous play sessions I've ever had <laughs> for wildly different reasons uh, that I won't get into, but weird tables, weird games, both very, very cool games. But yeah, I mean, they're very cool games. Uh, Dogs in the Vineyard is genuinely, I think, one of the most interesting games I've ever read. I I literally never, ever, ever want to play it in my life, ever. <laughs> oh my god, it would be traumatizing uh, for oh. me in particular. Oh, you don't want to, oh, you don't want to just raise some dice? You don't want to, you don't want to throw some bets with a big old dice pool that no one understands? Come on. <laughs> Uh, sure, I'll do yeah. that. Just don't make the religious trauma part of it. <laughs> Fine. Uh, well, any other thoughts on Fruitful Void, or do we want to talk about fluid characters? Let's talk about fluid characters. Um, fluid characters was pretty straightforward, right? The kind of central thesis of this point is queer lives uh, just aren't reflected well in sort of traditional kind of advancement systems, for instance, right? Very linear that queer lives are, to quote the slides, unexpected, fluid, changing, multidirectional, cloudy, and ever-changing. The the questions I had coming out of this one, so she talks through two two systems. She talks through uh, Ben Robbins' game, Kingdom, right? Yes. Yeah, Ben Robbins said Kingdom. Um, a Ben Robbins game, Kingdom, and then a Jackson Tegu game called Silver and White. I tried desperately to find silver and white because it sounded so interesting and it just does not appear to exist on the internet oh anymore. that's interesting yeah I, I had never heard of it and i and her description of it i was like yo this sounds dope as fuck <laughs> yeah so jackson tegu has a website um and a patreon but the last updates were i think from 2021 and there's only a single game on uh, Jackson Tegu's Ichio, and it is not silver and white. The the thing I th- I found most interesting about the fluid characters stuff was the some of the stuff we talked about with uh, some of the games from last episode, right? Which is one of the things she brings up in Kingdom in particular is sort of the role switching. So there are these three roles in Kingdom. I can't pull them off the top of my head. Uh, they might be in the it's- slide. They it's are power, um, perspective, perspective, touchstone, and, and power. Touchstone, yes. Um, and so these are these are roles that you take on in the game kingdom, and they they sh- shift uh, as the the sort of game continues, and can they can shift voluntarily, but they can also be taken away from you. So it's not just this sort of one linear kind of like moving forward or moving upwards in terms of whatever leveling stats etc again i i thought this was i thought this was interesting probably more so for a game designer than me necessarily um i i I sort of read this one i was like yeah cool uh okay yeah (laughs) but i don't know i don't know that i had much of a sort of I, i don't know that i had deeper thoughts than that to be honest um i think these are cool mechanics when they show up and i would love to see more of them was my take. yes absolutely and I think we can just jump into the next one, yeah. the um, character non-monogamy, because I think they're they're deeply interconnected, and I yeah. think I generally agree that um, these are much more useful as design tools uh, than um, as critical tools as such. So character non-monogamy is basically just like when you design a game where there isn't a one-to-one relationship between a player and a player character. Avery brings up Bliss Stage by Ben Lehman, a game that I didn't really understand have not encountered before, but it sounded like 
the idea is like you sort of collectively create a bunch of characters and then like in play you basically just like all decide like so these are the cool ones and like i'm gonna be this cool one this time and then you just sort of like pick from this pool does that sound like how you remember it being described yeah i i i listened again to the talk today and and listen specifically for this part because i had a similar thing where i was like character non-monogamy i love it and then during the bliss stage section was sort of like i trust that you're describing a thing that makes sense but i don't know that i have the context but i think what you have said is correct uh, the quiet year is like the is like a really good and clear example for me of of what this could look like which was just i'm just more familiar so that's probably it but i also really i mean one of we don't need to turn this into a quiet year fan cast but um <laughs> If it's not there already, but like it's all it's always been it's, it's always it's been always there. it's always been a fan cast for quiet the quiet year. Uh but at like the this right, like the specific thing about the quiet year that I found so fascinating when I first read it was that if you are going to play a particular individual character, it should be very brief, right? It's only in if you want to embody them during the like conversation section. Hold, yeah, hold a conversation specifically is the name of the move. Yeah, and otherwise what you what you are is you are trying to represent an interest or a community or a group and like that's so fascinating and so cool. I mean, I think even th- this is another thing I think that Tyler Crumrine's stuff does in in dating.sim, right? Totally. Like you are you're not handing over everything necessarily but like the switch between the lead between act one and act two is like is very cool one person gets to play the lead at the beginning and then it sort of it becomes this collective ownership uh for act two which is very uh i wrote i wrote down this quote um from avery's talk about the quiet year um which is just a a thing that i found really cool because i never thought about it this way um so i apologize again that i'm gonna i'm gonna read from a transcription that i made of part of this talk um When I declare that the community takes action, it's not really clear what percentage or what faction of the community is taking action, just that action is occurring, just just that action is occurring. So we see a story told from the map's point of view. And I really like that she specifically clarifies, like, that when you take an action, it could be, it could be 12 people in a, in a group of 600. It could be, you know, 79 people in a group of 80. You simply do not know. It maybe, maybe there's something in, in the context that makes it clear, but there's no mechanic to say, like, this is the number of people I am representing, or this is the percentage of this community I'm representing. It's just, what happens on the map. Uh, and I think that rules in a way I hadn't explicitly thought of before. And, and I thought of a lot of ways explicitly that the quiet year rules. So, yeah, I, I like, I liked that a lot um, as well. Do you maybe want to talk about the other one that didn't confuse us? And then we can talk about the two that confused us sort of. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about some polyvocality. <laughs> Please let's talk about <laughs> so that, that, so we're skipping the fourth one for now. The fifth one is fluctuating meanings, which is, I mean, I think the monster heart example just makes this super clear right which is in the game monster hearts the the teens are both literal actual monsters right werewolves etc and also metaphorical monsters in that they're teenagers mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um and teenagers are monsters as she as she says in the talk which is great this is this is the idea right so mechanics that sort of shift and slide with context so multiple meetings ambiguity vagueness polyvocality one might say uh, one one might, in fact, say polyvocality. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it rules, right? Just be like, it's just good writing advice, right? To be like, hey, if you have a, if you have some mechanics that are like attached to meanings, what if they attach to multiple meanings? And then all of a sudden your shit uh, explodes with possibility and that rules. It does. And, and uh, I mean, it's sort of like the other two, the, the, the previous two we just talked about, fluid characters and character non-monogamy. I, I think the fluctuating meaning stuff is really cool. It's definitely something that I will keep an eye out for. I think it's an interesting thing to like, it's a good question to ask as you read yes, a thing. Yes, totally. The, this is jumping to the end, right? But like, I, I really, the, the thing I really appreciated about this talk in a, in a lot of ways was like, even the parts where I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to design a game. I, I, it was very clear to me what she was doing and her like her scope felt really clear. And so I found it interesting, even if I was like, ah, I don't know that I will use this. And and the reason I'm even saying any of this is like thinking about it in comparison to, for instance, System Does Matter, which we read last month. System Does Matter had a bunch of things that I, I said during the, the recording, right? Like I, some of these things are kind of useful and could be interesting, but like there was so little information and so little like example, right? Or like turning any of the sort of concepts concrete that I just ended up walking away from System Does Matter being like, I don't, I just don't know how to use any of this in a way that would be useful. And I came away from this talk feeling like even though there's probably what, three of the six where I was kind of like, eh, I don't know that I would like use this like I'm not going to necessarily look for fluid characters in that exact way that sort of she lays out but I, I like totally got what she was doing and it was like interesting and well laid out and well exemplified uh, I just appreciated that she did a good talk I guess is the point I'm making in the middle of our it's, conversation it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, no it's, it's uh, it, right I mean this is part of it right is like at the point of reception where we're at <laughs> Fluid characters and character non-monogamy are simply facts about the game. Correct. Yeah, 100%. And that is not the case for somebody who's designing their own game. That is a thing to actively think for. I think the fruitful void and fluctuating meanings are the the two central pieces. But maybe that's just because, you know, I'm a, you know, I did a a literature degree in my undergrad and uh, I like to do things like uh, deconstructive readings and close readings. So... That's kind of what these two things very explicitly point towards. Yeah, it's, um, it's weird that the two you really like a lot are the deconstruction ones. That's pretty weird. Uh-huh. Um, um, fluctuating, uh, the sort of polyvocality, I wouldn't necessarily 100 put that in the deconstruction camp. Because that's that's also very useful when you're just with close reading in general, I think, is, you know, you're, you want to read a poem about a Grecian urn and, and I don't, write a book I, about it? I don't, actually. No, thank <laughs> you. I'm good. I've read it a few times. I'm done. Uh-huh. Anyway, should we talk about the shit we don't understand? Yeah, so so the the final two, so this is point four and point six. I, I sort of get them, but these felt just like a little underspecified to me. In terms of I think specifically like what the queering part would be, I guess. Um, So let's, we'll talk about the first one. So the first one, uh, explicit power dynamics uh, is, is the, the name she gives Uh, summary of this, right? Uh, She does it. She does a very good job. It's very funny. Uh, It's often taboo to talk about the power dynamics that govern our relationships. I'm here reading from the slide. It is extra taboo to play around with them. We can reveal and challenge the way power differentials operate in our relationships. 
which I get, I understand. I understand what power dynamics are. I understand that it is it is also true that we don't often talk about them. I don't fully think I understand what this like does. Is this is it basically just making making the power dynamics explicit? I think it's that simple. I think the thing that confused me at least was the example actually. Because yeah. she talks about this game called Hot Guys Making Out by Ben Lehman. Maybe if I had revisited it, I would I would tell a different story. But like my understanding of it is, it's like a two player game with very defined dudes, and part of the gameplay is basically like you know one of them is is much more meek and one of them is much more boisterous, and there are like pretty clear things that each of them can and cannot do, and so. It's clear that there is, that there is certain power dynamics in the in the, that are systematized, I guess, or that are mechanized, which I think you can make an argument is is an explicitly queer move in a in an industry where that is <laughs> that is not how that shit works. Uh, if there are yeah. you know if there are romance mechanics in a game that is like at, at industry level, um, I I haven't fucking heard of it. <laughs> um, I don't think Call of Cthulhu has like a robust, you know, sexuality slider <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the example was definitely confusing. There there was, yeah, there was talk of like physical strength and like picking people up. It, it was somewhat confusing. Yeah. <laughs> It, and and it, it was confusing, I would say, in in the exact same way as yes. the other one, enshrining the preposterous, which I, I think is similarly, I think I'm going to say it's essentially a very similar thing, and you will probably respond the same, which is enshrining the preposterous is there's this great quote, which is games don't need to be physics engines. Love it. Such Kicks a ass. Just yes, fucking absolutely. banger. Uh-huh. Good ass line. <laughs> but like. So, enshrining the preposterous, I'm going to read the slide. Games don't need to be physics engines. We get to decide how our worlds work, no matter how weird, liminal, subjective, or preposterous. We can approach the absurd through camp or hypersincerity. And then the two examples are an old Anna Anthropy game called The Hunt for Gay Planet and another Jackson Tegu game called Superhero. And... They, they're pretty different games. The Hunt for the Gay Planet is about two lesbians who are going on a space adventure to find the gay planet Lesbionica. And the superhero game, uh, I think, basically, it's what she said was it. it's a game that's, like, premised on you know, the stories you would tell when you were 10 years old before you got um, cynical. She specifically mentions things like, you you know, you're a superhero of some sort, and so, like, a lot of things have the opposite effect that you might think they would. Like, I think she says, like, it, you can, like, crash your car, and your car just gets faster from being crashed. You can get shot, and you just get tougher from being shot, or something like that, where, like... Yeah. It's uh the this the um subhead on the superhero slide is the aesthetics of awesome and like yeah that's that is the only thing I gathered from <laughs> that part of the talk was like okay so this is enshrining the preposterous because um it's useful to think in terms of awesomeness in a in a game design sense I think Yeah I mean uh, the the thing that I keep 
going back to is we can approach the absurd through camp or hypersincerity, I think is just a very interesting statement. I am not in any ways a camp scholar, right? This is a thing that exists. I don't, I don't know enough about it, but like for me, at least my like very basic understanding of camp is that in part, what makes camp camp is also a sincerity, but you're like taking seriously the, the camp, like the object of the campiness or whatever. So like I read this as basically sincerity, like enshrining the preposterous is the way that this is sort of a, a queering mechanic or a queer mechanic would be taking hyper seriously or being hyper earnest about all of, you know, the like crazy ideas you have or the out there ideas you have, which is like cool, but I don't know. Both of these felt slightly different to me than the other four uh, in a way that I'm, I, I have not fully been able to articulate. I think in my head at this point, I am, I have these, I have the, the, the two wolves as, as they say, sometimes um, one wolf is saying uh, this, this was just like, you know, this is a, this is an hour long talk solo with a baby crying the entire time in a foreign country. Something slipped through the cracks. Like maybe she had, a more developed idea going into this for these ones, and it just didn't quite translate because uh, humans are bodies and uh, panics panic is real and shit like that. And the other wolf is saying maybe it's just been a decade basically since this. It's been eight years, and like we have just been exposed to so many queer games at this point that we're like, why would you like? How would how would making expl- making explicit power dynamics queer a thing? When it, at the time we might have been like, oh shit, yeah. No, yeah, no one does that. <laughs> it, it is useful to think about what happened after this. I think you're exactly right. Like, there was, there were so many more, I think, explicit examinations of things like power dynamics coming up in sort of the queer game space. Yes. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's really good context uh, that I, I wasn't. I wasn't really fully thinking through, which is, you know, remembering when this happened and remembering, I mean, you brought it up in the context, right? But like depression quest getting on steam is like (laughs) depression quest seems so mild to me now (laughs) compared to things that happened afterwards. Right. Like, like it's just, so that's anyway, I appreciate you, you bringing that up. I think that's a very good point, which is absolutely at the time, taking seriously sort of the preposterous or taking seriously and or trying to subvert power dynamics, even just literally making them explicit, right? Like making it the text, not the subtext of the power dynamics of your characters would have absolutely probably felt pretty radical at the time. I know I made the two wolves joke, but I think all three of the things we've been discussing on the around this are true, right? Once in my, like it is, it is the simple reality of giving a talk. It is the, the, uh, <laughs> the development over time. And it is also just that, like, she does such an impeccable job fucking elsewhere in this talk that, like, these little dips where it's a little less uh, comprehensible or, um, at least for us, isn't, like, the end of the world. It's just like, ah, huh. It's not, uh, yeah, you you have pre- you have produced two incredibly useful things uh for me which is more than almost you know than most things can do and so having two things where i'm like i don't really get it is that's fine uh, 
Yeah. Well, and, and I'll say for my, I mean, for my part, I get it now. Like I genuinely do actually get like, oh, okay. I see why these, like, I still don't fully understand. I'd have to read hot guys making out. Right. But like, I, I don't understand that example, but like, I totally understand looking at this sort of when it was happening and like, of course, hunt for the gay planet is like huge and worth paying attention to specifically just because the only point of the game is it's cool to be a lesbian and have sex mm-hmm. with other lesbians, right? Like, that's the point of the game. The point mm-hmm. of the game is, like, let's have cool gay sex, right? And, yeah, like, in 2014, absolutely we needed that. So, like, I've even come out of this going, like, yeah, I think I get this now. Like, I get why these are here. I don't fully understand the examples uh, in all cases, but, like, I get I get. We Th- did it. This coheres to me, I guess, <laughs> is the point I'm making. We did it. Because, uh, as we know, the point of this podcast is to make sure that I... Uh, understand and like the articles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, do you, do you have any other sort of thoughts on the on the thing? Um, I I think I, I think yeah, I think that that basically covers the sort of overview and and the stuff we found interesting. And I think we've we've mostly talked through what we found useful about this. But I wanted to bring up just one more thing, sort of uh, to put a button on it, maybe. Um, and we've like touched on this, but haven't discussed it specifically. I think. There, there's another quote that I have from, from this talk um, where Avery says, I think one of the things that game systems do is they can mirror real world systems. The rules of a game can help shed light on the rules of real life. And, and like I, I think we've talked about that sort of obliquely, but um, I think that's an important thing to bring up explicitly because that's part of the project of this, right? Um, it's, it's not just like we're querying games and mechanics so that um, we can have these new ideas like so that to de- develop the games aesthetically or um in a in a political bubble but that this is a reflective of the ability to theoretically queer real world systems is is that a do you think that's a fair way of <laughs> like reiterating the point she made yeah i i think so 100 percent. i mean i think this is probably the point i um slightly skeptical about or not skeptical i just think there's there's caveats here uh which i totally get why they aren't in the talk the point of the talk was here's a bunch of interesting ideas you can take out right and like use when you play games and when you design games i mean i don't know that we said it explicitly but like the second to last slide is an actual call to action right that is how the talk ends is your challenge find the queerness in games bring more queerness to games design games that are mechanically queer, advocate for queer representation, and find ways to queer games through play. So it's, uh, I mean, it is a it is a call to action. I think specifically on the claim that game systems can help us translate things back into the real world or can help us imagine ways out of real world systems, I think that that is a very hopeful claim. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and I also think... The and I I imagine I could be wrong, but I would imagine that she might agree with the thing I'm about to say, which is that also assumes that the person who designed the system was conscious of these things when designing the system, right? Like playing Dungeons and Dragons is not necessarily going to help you imagine queer futures or queer alternative realities or understand the intricacies exactly, of capitalism right uh, the yeah. D could do that 
if if it was right, if it was being played by the people who were interested in that, blah blah blah. I mean, I think it's a, I, I think it's a really good, like it's a really good quote, and I think I don't even necessarily disagree with it. I just, I think that there's like an invisible asterisk with like an entire set of essays after it. It is um, a an infinite jest footnote. <laughs> yes, ex- exactly. 100%. There's a fake filmography. It's great. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree that I think this is a want to bring it up and less to interrogate it and like um, you know, break it down to its components as more to be like it is a it is a useful thing as context for why this design is meaningful and it's also a a really strong claim not that it, it's like not in a, therefore, it's a strong claim because it's correct, but it's a strong claim in that, like, I feel like I personally have gone through six different phases where I'm like, yes, this is why games fucking rule. Uh, because systems allows you to think uh, systemically, like, because engaging explicitly with systems, whether in video games or in, in tabletop games, never in board games, obviously, because I don't like those. <laughs> well like that that is like that is why i'm capable of like thinking through systemic racism on on the certain levels right and then there are times there's other periods in my life where i'm like who could imagine a more fucking self-aggrandizing claim especially when you're talking about video games for a for an industry that is built like from the ground up on fucking conflict minerals and military money um <laughs> like yeah I think the thing I really like about it, which I think this goes in line with some of what you were saying, is like, if I read it as like an aspirational call to action, I think it's really exciting, right? Like, and as a question, right, of like, one of the things the game systems can do is they can mirror real world systems, the rules of a game can help shed light on the real rules of real life, using that as a driving principle for play at a table, or designing a system or choosing a system for a game with friends is like, absolutely yes like like electrifying and i i i'm laughing only because it's like i realized as i was saying it how ridiculous it sounds but like genuinely it's like super exciting as like and even for our project here right of like okay when i go and read this these systems like can can this game help shed light on the rules of real life can it help us think through ways of existing even something as simple uh, not simple, but like as light seeming as dating dot sim. I think it could be very productive to like think about ways in which dating dot sim could, for instance, model alternate ways of dating or alternate views on whatever. Like, I think that there's, I think it's a really productive sort of mindset to take into reading games and playing games, almost more so than it is, than reading it as a as sort of a claim of the state of the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really, um, I, I, I think this is a good thing that you have brought up here at the end, right? Which is like, we asked the question, like, what is useful, right? This is like the way we have it in our agenda or whatever. And I, I think, honestly, one of the most useful things from this talk is just like, the method almost mm. of like, okay, so like, here is a thing that I know as a queer person is important, right? Which is being able to imagine queer sort of alternatives, right? And what a sort of queer revolt, queer resistance, queer thriving looks like. How can games help us? And like, what are what are some ways in which we could 
like what are some ways in which we could approach specific mechanics? Like, I think that it's just an interesting kind of method, I guess, but more so it's just really, it's exciting as like an aspirational thing, like I've already said, right. Which is like, if we're going to, if we're going to play games, if we're going to talk about games, let's talk about what, what they can help us imagine. Um, That seems useful and exciting. Yeah. And I I think it, I think it, uh, (laughs) it answers the question, uh, way better than than the article by which it is titled that uh system sure does matter right <laughs> um, yeah yeah um for sure i had a whole thing in the in the historical context as i understand it I had a whole bullet point about avery which we kind of i think we talked about briefly on the actual system does matter episode but like avery did post on the forge and has had multiple threads um sort of talking about the forge and, and its importance it has said explicitly in those threads that, like, she found the th- the Forge important, but also when she's talking about the Forge, she's mostly talking about post-Forge stuff, about, like, you know, the sort of diaspora yeah. onto RPG.net, and especially Google+, and then Twitter, and nowadays Discord, I suppose. But uh, Discord is the place I go to uh, record podcasts for the Island Demeter Podcast Network, so... Um, I don't know about all this mm-hmm. community shit on here. <laughs> um, uh, no, thank people? you. No, thank you. Ah, weird. <laughs> Gross. Um, hey, I have a question. Great. What are we playing? What are we? I almost said, what are we playing? We're not playing anything. We're not, <laughs> not playing. Anything. No, we're not playing anything. <laughs> Never. Ever. Um, I had a I had a wonderful game of the Gateshead Engine. Um, just a couple days ago. Uh, games 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 can be fun to play. What are we reading? I'm skeptical. For, what 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 system are we reading? So, um, I have a physical pile of some books that I have purchased over the last few years that is part of a a much larger list of games that we might read. And since you picked this wonderful Avery Alder talk, I decided to pick one of the physical Avery Alder games uh, to read. Have you read Ribbon Drive? Ooh, I... Have I read Ribbon Drive? I have definitely started reading Ribbon Drive at some point. I had, ge- I genuinely had no idea what BW was going to say here. This is not a feigned reaction. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. I did not think this is the direction you were going to go in, BW. Um, I, uh, I have definitely at some point had a PDF for Ribbon Ribbon Drive. Um, I've definitely looked at it a number of times. I don't know that I've ever read it all the way through. Can I? Can I? Can I shoot a shot in the in the semi dark here? Sure. I mean, sure. I don't. I don't. I have no idea what this is about. <laughs> what shot are you shooting? Ribbon Drive is a road trip game with a mixtape component. Correct. That is exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say just a little more about it. So R- Ribbon Drive is a game by Avery Alder. It was. Uh, I think it was done in. I just looked this up. Uh, I think it was. 2011 or 2012 maybe yeah so i think it was originally put out in like 2009 and i think the the like official published version which is the same published version as 2011 okay and so it exists as a a physical little like it's like a 24 page or something zine thing it's very cute uh full color it's very nice um i bought this like a billion years ago when i bought a physical version of the quiet year but yeah it's a story game about road trips mixtapes and self-discovery um, and so part of the prep, if we were going to play this, is uh, you have to put together a mixtape of songs. 
before you play. And yeah, I uh, I went in a bunch of different directions. I had I uploaded. I mean, you, you have access to the <laughs> Google Drive where the PDFs are, mm-hmm. but I I uploaded probably like five games uh, on Saturday um, as I was trying to make my final call and. I just decided, you know, let's go ahead and do the Avery one since it was already on my list. I have uh, similarly, I started Ribbon Drive um, like when I first bought it, uh, but I don't think I ever actually read through the whole thing. So, yeah, I'm excited. Um, it, it actually came up very briefly in the in the talk. Uh, she mentioned it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what we that's what I'm going to have us read next time. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just skimming this and there's like some 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 box. T- no, no. Box text is a term that means uh, things that GM is supposed to read out loud to players. It has a... Correct. It has a, a little aside, a, a little play, like, report sort of thing here that's... Uh, you, me, and, my, and a mutual friend agree to play a game of Ribbon Drive on Friday. We all go home and make mixes beforehand. Yours is called Anxiously We Go, and is about the thin line between hope and doubt. You included some mountain goats, a modest mouse song, and lots of weird bands that I've never heard of before. My mix is called Heard Through Thin Walls, and is about jealousy, mes- messy relationships, and small communities. It, com- it includes some Tegan and Sarah, as well as the Cranberries. Our friend yeah. <laughs> made a mix Hell called yeah. Die Happy, full of emo and pop-punk songs about bad breakups. It's got some my chemical romance and misfits <laughs> 2009 baby oh my god uh, i back. am so excited for this yeah no this has been a game that has been in the back of my mind forever and i've never gotten around to it i'm really excited good and i like that it's a pre okay when you said you picked an avery alder game i was like oh i bet it's gonna be dream dream askew that was just my immediate assumption that is currently uploaded to the google nice. drive <laughs> Because that was one of the other options. But yeah, no, I, I'm I'm very excited about this. Uh, I also now that I have this open, um, we got uh, some <laughs> some dedications here. We got a, some shout outs to Ben Lehman, who has come up in our show today. Also from Jackson Tegu. Absolutely. I was doing a little bit of research earlier, and I, I didn't find a way to jump in. It looks like Silver and White was published in 2010. Um, and the only thing I can find is an RPG Geek link about it that says the designer Jackson Tegu has removed his PDF file for the rules of Silver and White from his website. The most recent version not presently available is called Next Winter. There have been subtle and delicate tweaks to some of the rules, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I did some Googling around and could not find anything called Next Winter. So I don't know if that was like a playtest that was happening a million years ago and never came out. Or if that's something somebody wrote yesterday, because I don't know how to like see when additions were made to RPG Geek. But yeah, it looks like Silver and White definitely disappeared, and it might be around under some other name somewhere, but probably not. Oh, it was a Game Chef game also. I didn't see that until just now. Game Chef is cool. I always mean I to... I believe you. Yeah, I, I one of those four games I mentioned earlier was a Game Chef game with a uh, person who I have not spoken to in a number of years, um, but uh, yeah, um, I'm fucking hyped. I'm, I'm really excited to, to read Ribbon Drive. I, that, great choice. Thank you, VW. I'm, I'm so excited to finally have an excuse to really sit down with Ribbon Drive. I'm here to serve. Uh, and to make a mixtape called Die Happy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, uh, so I, the excerpt that you, you were reading on Saturday when I was like skimming through and trying to remind myself if I had actually read th- the book, uh, the mix heard through thin walls. I read 
the first two times I skimmed through the book, I read it as head through thin walls <laughs> and was kind of like, wow, Tegan and Sarah. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll we'll read that uh, next episode and yeah. talk about it. Hell yeah. Okay. Where can uh, people find you on the internet, BWL? I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to, listen, I'm just going to change this every time. You can follow my quote unquote brand Instagram, uh, instagram.com slash bakery slash workshop. Uh, that is three words all spelled out with no spaces between them. Bakery slash workshop. I love to have confusing names. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm I'm between Twitter accounts at this point. I don't really know. I think I might be coming back to Twitter at some point because, as much as um, everyone congratulates you when you say you got off Twitter, um, I found it's it's really cut me off from a lot of thinkers and communities that I found very useful, and I I never found Twitter to be incredibly toxic in a way I think a lot of other people experience it. Um, but you know, that all aside, check out Island Demeter. That's uh, you know. This is hosted. It's a podcast network. It's a it's a it's a fake as fuck podcast network. That's the official slogan. You can find you can find Island Demeter, our flagship actual play podcast, uh, <laughs> season two on the way. You can find a uh, friend. No, what was that shit that I do called? Uh, Thoughts about the table. You can. You can find thoughts about the table there. You shouldn't. Uh, where I talk th- through episodes of Friends at the Table. You can find No No Buzz, my YouTube book review show, linked over. Can there. I just say uh-huh. you should find No No Buzz? I that's. I'm just gonna. Go, I'm just gonna <laughs> say that. I don't care about what my co-host thinks. You should go and find No No Buzz on YouTube. Those are good. They're good episodes. <laughs> B talks about books. They're great. <laughs> Um, have you watched the the Portrait of the Artist yet? Uh, no, I uh, <laughs> I got a spoiler, so I know that it's a wild one. Uh-huh. But no, I I am behind. I think I'm like three episodes behind or four episodes. So you're right about there. Um, it listen, if you want to see me do some unhinged shit uh, while while talking about a book that I found quite great in many ways. Uh, I I read The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Um, Maybe you've heard of it. I talked about it for about 40 minutes. I did. I do some uh, dramatic readings. I do some, you know, bad plot summary because I don't actually care. But sometimes you kind of want to try to set stuff up. Uh, and I, I talk a lot about, you know, faith and the representation of Irish politics and the and the in in the intertwining of the two at the time and just a bunch of stuff um it's delightful a delightful video to have shot i rewatched part of it and was like oh well, right i have incredibly bad gender dysphoria so i shouldn't be rewatching these things <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah being a person is hard yeah and i'm a person who makes a lot of shit that i don't ever want to revisit speaking of which uh, I, I'm going to have to edit this, so I'm actually going to have to listen to myself, but that's fine. <laughs> um, this has been an episode of On the Matter of Systems, and it was it was fun. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Everybody.